You're listening to a podcast mini-series on artificial intelligence from McKinsey, featuring conversations with a wide range of experts in the field. Artificial intelligence is poised to expand the realm of what's possible in every facet of our lives. Already, it has transformed everyday activities from banking to shopping to the way that we interact with our phones. But as AI becomes more powerful, some worry about what could happen if these intelligent systems become, well, too intelligent. Will they begin to tell us humans what to do rather than the other way around? I'm David DeLalo with McKinsey Publishing, and welcome to this edition of our McKinsey podcast series on AI. In this episode, we'll be talking about this question of building AI systems that are as smart or even smarter than us, and how we can ensure AI truly benefits humanity rather than causing us harm. To explore this topic, McKinsey Global Institute Chairman James Manyika sat down with Stuart Russell, one of the world's foremost thought leaders on AI. Stuart is well known for co-authoring the seminal textbook on developing AI system nearly three decades ago. Today, Stuart is poised to guide the next generation of AI with his latest book, Human Compatible. Released last year, it's been called the most important book on AI and tackles the problem of control, as Stuart calls it, as machines become more intelligent and could potentially ignore our requests. To start, it's probably good for us to learn exactly how Stuart defines AI. As James points out early in their conversation, there's a lot of hype in the press and misunderstanding about exactly what AI is. This is actually an important point because I think normally these days when you read the typical press, you would think AI equals deep learning. So, but, but how, how do you define artificial intelligence then? There are lots of parts of AI that actually don't rely on deep learning at all. There's still a huge logic-based, I mean, you can think of the whole database industry as the, uh, a branch of logic-based AI. Um, you know, all of the business rules or business intelligence kinds of systems that they use effectively logical rules on logical data and, you know, they run a big chunk of the economy and the web. Um, so it's not as if that stuff died or disappeared or was wrong. It just, it found a niche uh, where it's entirely applicable. Um, there are other technologies, for example, probabilistic programming uh, is an area which, which took the, uh, the Bayesian network technology of the late 80s, early 90s, um, and uh, essentially lifted it up to the next level. So, for example, the monitoring system for the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. So this is a system running in Vienna that is listening to the entire planet through very, very sensitive seismic detectors uh, and trying to understand all of the seismic activity on Earth and figure out which of it is man-made, so to speak, in terms right. of being clandestine nuclear explosions. A big probabilistic programming system that is running in real time. It, it generates models with hundreds of thousands or millions of variables doing probabilistic reasoning right. in real time. So more broadly, um, I'll give you the classical <laughs> definition, sort of the one that's in the textbook. Um, AI is about building machines that do the right thing, that act in ways that can be expected to achieve their objectives. And this covers uh, you know, the learning systems, it covers the robotic systems, the game-playing systems, the right. natural language systems. They can all be understood in this framework. So that sounds pretty straightforward and logical, building machines that act in predictable ways to meet their objectives. 
But in actuality, Stewart says it's this classical definition that may be leading us down the wrong path, one in which AI systems begin acting in unpredictable ways. More on that shortly. But first, let's get into what Stewart thinks about the potential for superintelligent machines and where they could fit into the future of our world. We want to be able to uh, endow machines with intelligence at least comparable to or in relevant respects superior to our own. It would be a tool that we could use to increase the power and capabilities of our civilization. But what exactly are superintelligent machines, and how are they different from the AI systems organizations are building today, like those that can predict what products we'll buy or that alert factory workers when a piece of equipment is about to fail before there are any visible indications? One of the questions I think that's also at the center of this discussion we're having right now is the idea of what would a superintelligence or a general intelligence look, look like? And as you know, in the AI community, there's often this distinction made between AI and AGI, uh, which is intended to signify an artificial general intelligence. Is that distinction useful? Interestingly, the difference, Stuart says, is more of an artificial distinction, if you will, than a real one. So AGI is a little bit of a marketing term, although it sort of comes from a little academic community. Um, it's intended to, to actually mark off the group of people who think of themselves as working on the long-term goal, creating human-level or superhuman intelligence. Um, and the, their story is that most people in AI are just working on narrow uh, applications and spin-offs uh, and uh, have lost sight of the long-term goal. So I actually don't think this is true. At all. To make his case, he shares the story of an AT&T lab group that was trying to solve a fairly mundane business problem back in the 1990s. They were working on recognizing handwritten digits for the U.S. Postal Service and for banks. They could recognize handwritten checks. I couldn't get much more narrow and boring and tedious than that. It was this very ordinary goal that led to an important advance in AI the development of convolutional neural networks. These networks, or CNNs as they're often referred to, are a type of deep learning model that enable us to infer information from unstructured datasets like images. Convolutional neural networks make it possible, for example, for AI systems to diagnose diseases from health scans or detect a product defect on a production line through images. So. Really, there isn't, uh, there isn't a whole lot of evidence that narrow AI actually exists at all. Um, that yes, we build AI systems for particular applications, but in order to make them work, we tend to develop technology that has lots of other applications. Um, and the process of moving AI forward is, first of all, understanding the limits of what that technology can and can't do. And then can we remove those limits one by one until they're kind of all gone? So what limitations do we need to remove to get there? An important one Stuart shares is the ability for AI systems to create what he calls abstractions, which are basically the ability for machines to bring together existing ideas and create entirely new things. So I didn't invent the idea of taking the metro. Right? But it's there, it's a civilization created it as an operation, which I can then combine into more complex operations. 
Um, you know, I didn't invent the getting a PhD, but I could choose to do it because it existed as a step. So our civilization over centuries has produced layer upon layer upon layer of these abstractions, which we then sort of have, it's like a library. We're taught what they are, and then we can put them together in new ways to make new things. You know, and so in recent years, we've, we've added Ubering and Googling and emailing, which didn't exist before. Um, you know, and taking a flight to Australia, which uh, used to be something almost impossible, and now is just a thing. You just do it. So this idea of assembling things and uh, achieving higher and higher levels of abstraction. Right. So creating those new abstractions is, uh, that's the, one of the big open problems. We yeah. don't know how to do that. So it seems we're well on the way to creating these super intelligent machines. But how long will it be until they're truly a reality? Most people think that superintelligent AI is going to arrive sometime this century. And in fact, it's likely to happen faster than we think. So um, if you look at AlphaGo, for example, so AlphaGo is a, a system built by DeepMind that beat the best Go players in the world. And you know, this Go is a game that's considered to be much more complex than chess. It certainly has a bigger state space, many more possible legal moves at any given point. So even after the human world chess champion was beaten back in 97, people predicted it would take another 100 years before we could beat the world Go champion. Um, but that happened uh, less than 20 years later, so in 2016, using machines that were, I think, um, almost a billion times faster. Uh, so a lot more computational power um, and a lot more training. So we know superintelligence is possible, and we're well on our way to solving the technology barriers to creating machines that are as smart or even smarter than we are. How then do we ensure we stay in control and avoid a scenario where robots can and do take over? Some have suggested the only or best solution is abandoning the development of superintelligent systems altogether. After all, they say, this is a foolproof way to ensure these systems don't take over the world. But that's not the way to go, Stuart says. You would lose then the, the golden age benefits, right? The, uh, all the upside would disappear. Um, so I think to, to have any impact on this story, you have to understand why do we lose control. And um, so that was the, sort of the genesis of the book, was thinking about why we lose control. So remember earlier when Stuart shared the classical definition of AI, this idea of building machines to do the right thing and meet their objectives? This idea of meeting certain objectives gets a bit thorny, and it's basically the crux of the problem, Stuart says. So it's a bad model because it's, it's only of benefit to us if we state the objective completely and correctly. And it turns out that that's not possible in general, right? In the lab with not very bright computers, um, what typically happens is you state the objective, you see the behavior, you don't like it, you say, okay, I, got, I guess I got it wrong. We've actually known this for thousands of years, that um, you can't get it right. You know, King Midas said, I want everything I touch to turn to gold. Well, he got exactly what he wanted, including his food and his drink and right, his family right. and dies in misery and starvation. You know, the, all the stories, you know, when you rub a lamp and the genie comes up, what's the third wish? Please, <laughs> right, right, right? Please undo, undo the first two done. wishes because I ruined everything. Even if the machine 
understands our, our, the full extent of our preferences, which I think is sort of impossible because we don't understand. We don't know how we're going to feel about some future experience. So halting AI development isn't a good idea, nor is it likely possible. But continuing on the current path could lead to some significant problems. What's the solution here? Stewart believes we can avoid disaster by shifting our focus from building intelligent systems to building beneficial ones, which operate under three principles. The key characteristics, um, which I express in the book as three principles, just entirely coincidental resemblance to Asimov's laws. Um, but the first principle is that um, being of benefit to the humans is the only objective for machines. Um, but the second principle is that the machine does not know what that means. It does not know our preferences for how the future should unfold. And that turns out to be crucial. It knows that it doesn't know the objective. The third principle is uh, essentially what enables it to learn more about the objective, that um, our choices, our behavior, reveals information about our underlying preferences. Now, there are probably other ways you could do it with fMRI machine, right. telepathy, or something, some way of getting at underlying preferences. But um, you know, up to now and for, for the foreseeable future, it's based on the choices we make. So the third principle says that uh, preferences are what produce behavior. And so by observing behavior, we can infer something about underlying preferences. And this is, um, this is probably the place where things get complicated because uh, the process by which we produce behavior is not perfect. We, we often do things that we later realize uh, weren't exactly the right thing, including like, you know, Lisa Dahl, the famous Go player, playing a losing move in his match against AlphaGo, right? He realized afterwards that was a losing move, right? And it wasn't that he was trying to lose, it's just that his, his cognitive processes uh, did not enable him to play perfectly. It's here that James stops Stewart. He wants to understand the second principle just a bit more. Well, let, let me ask this. Of your three principles, the one that seems to be the, to be the big leap is the second one, yeah. which is a presumption that, in fact, uh, preferences are never fully knowable. Uh, because if you don't have that, then the whole premise falls apart. You count on the fact that we are inherently unknowable. For Stewart, it's not the inherently unknowable. Certainly, AI systems can and do learn our preferences at any given time. But that's the key. They learn our preference at that moment. We're human, after all, and our preferences can and often do change. They'd never be stable long enough for the machine to learn what they are. Um, and uh, obviously, there are billions of us, and we all have different preferences and so on. So what we're actually doing is we're saying, OK, instead of writing algorithms that find optimal solutions for a fixed objective, right? We write algorithms which solve this problem, the problem of functioning as sort of one half of a combined system with humans. So this actually makes it a game theoretic problem because now there's two entities. So when you solve this kind of problem, this game, um, where the machine's half of the game is basically try to be beneficial to the human, it will do things to learn more. So asking permission allows it to learn more about your preferences. Uh, we simply 
want the machine to learn for each of the 8 billion people on Earth, what would they like the future to be like? Um, now, having said that, so that's, that's quite feasible in the same sense that you know, Facebook already has a couple of billion personal profiles, uh, about a couple of billion individuals. So this is not sci-fi that we could have models for every human. This idea of having AI systems ask our permission is critical, according to Stuart. In essence, it's a built-in shutoff switch that ensures we can turn these systems off at any time. To illustrate this, he uses the example of simply finding and buying a cup of coffee in Paris. If uh, it has information, for example, that you know we like coffee, but uh, or we you know we would like a cup of coffee right now, uh, let's say we ask, but it doesn't know much about our price sensitivity, right? So the only plan it can come up with, because we're in the Georges Sank in Paris, is to go and ask for a cup of coffee, and it's 13 euros. And it should come back uh, and say, would you, would, you like, would you still like the coffee at 13 euros? Or would, you know, if you wait another 10 minutes, I can go around the corner and find a, a cafe or a Starbucks and get something that's cheaper. And so if there was any reason why the human would want to switch it off, then it's happy to be switched off because it doesn't, it wants to avoid doing whatever it is that the right. human is trying to prevent right. Right. it from doing. And that's the exact opposite of the machine with a fixed objective, which actually will take steps to prevent itself from being switched off, because it, that would prevent it from achieving the objective. So how do we make that shift, James goes on to ask. Stewart believes the answer lies in educating those who develop AI systems to rethink the use of these fixed objectives. Well, one way is we, we, uh, we write a new, uh, a new edition of the textbook, <laughs> which is what I'm doing right now, and give some examples. So we have some examples in some of the chapters of how to do things this other way. Another way, he suggests, is that we start creating demonstration systems so data scientists can see exactly how these concepts play out in the real world. Basically, these demos would provide an alternative system to what we're doing now. Content selection systems, which have been under the microscope for helping to fuel distribution of controversial content and perpetuating negative stereotypes, are a prime candidate. An alternative kind of social media content selection um, that was sensitive to possible uh, negative consequences, or should we say just unknown, like consequences on parts of the world whose right. value you're not sure about, don't have those consequences at least don't do it without asking first. He says self-driving cars also top the list to start with. Self-driving cars, as they, as they come out, um, yeah, there probably will be a process. I mean, they have a, they have a relatively narrow range of things they can do, but uh, there are still preferences that you have for you know, how fast do you really want to go? You know, maybe a little over the speed limit, a lot over the speed limit. Uh, you know, do you want to keep changing lanes? Do you, not, do you like to have a nice steady ride, um, how, you know, how far away from the terminal can I drop you off if there's a, if there's a big queue of traffic waiting to get there. Uh, you know, all these kinds of questions. You, you want something, so just to come back to this difference between the standard model and the new model. The standard model is like the genie in the lamp, right? You get exactly what the objective you put in and you always regret it. And this would be more like the perfect butler, right, who understands what you want, what you might not want, 
and knows when to ask uh, and when to defer uh, to, to what your preferences might be. And that's, I think, uh, in a nutshell, where we want to go. It's certainly a fascinating way to think about AI and likely how we can get the most and best results out of this truly amazing capability. And with that, we conclude this edition of our podcast series. Many thanks to James and Stuart for letting us listen in on their conversation. And thank you, listeners, for joining. Please do check out some of our additional podcasts on this and other McKinsey channels. Bye for now.